Well, thank you, church. As you're having a seat, if you would, grab your Bibles and open up to Matthew chapter 7. If you're new with us, I want to say welcome. We're thrilled that you are here with us. Uh, kind of the meat and potatoes of how we study the scriptures here at Providence North is we go through books of the Bible or we go through big, large chunks of the Bible uh, verse by verse and, and lay our lives down on top of what Jesus has told us in his word. And so uh, we find ourselves, we've spent the last, I think this is week 15 in the Sermon on the Mount. This is our final week in the Sermon on the Mount. Hadn't that gone by quick? Yeah, it's, it's, gone, it's flown by. I can't believe it's November. It's crazy. So we will finish the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' inauguration of what it means to live as children in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God was not like anything that they uh, thought it was going to be. It's not like anything we thought it was going to be. And Jesus comes in with this sermon teaching us and showing us what it means to be children in the kingdom of God. And I can't believe we're coming to an end of it. Um, it's been just formative for me personally. I think there is this level of responsibility that we have as believers in Christ when we read the words of Jesus and we're in them for this long. I mean, I've been studying and looking and kind of digging into this sermon for 15 weeks, and it's just been uh, formative for me personally. It's been challenging for me personally to read the words of Jesus and hear him say what it means to live as children in the kingdom of God and how vastly different that is in the world in which I feel like I live and breathe. It's, it just almost feels alien, his words. And that's on purpose because we are aliens and strangers here. We are for another kingdom and we worship another king. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we learn who that is and we learn what that kingdom is all about. And so it's meant to challenge us. It's meant to change us. And at the end here, it's meant to produce a response in us is what Jesus wants. It's not just an ethics lesson. The Sermon on the Mount is not just some really neat points that we can uh, kind of take notes on and close our books and go about our lives. It's meant to have pervasive change in our hearts and our minds and in our lives. And so for me, it's just been formative personally. And I think for a church, our church, it's been formative as we have community groups looking at it, as we individually have been looking at it, I hope. And uh, this, this, these are the words that launched the ministry of Jesus. And so uh, we're going to be jumping in and looking at as this sermon closes in the words. And what we're going to be left with is this idea and this understanding that the words of Jesus were shocking. They were startling. They were um, frightening. They were confusing. Um, in fact, when the crowd heard, when the crowds that were all gathered around hearing the sermon, when they heard the words of Jesus, they responded with shock. They couldn't believe what they had just heard. We, we've been in it for 15 weeks. It took Jesus probably about 25 minutes to say the sermon out loud. If you were just to open it and read it, it takes about 25 minutes. We've been looking at it for a, a long time. But when in all collectively together, they were shocked. They were challenged. Everything about themselves and the world that they lived in and they thought they knew about God's kingdom had been challenged by Jesus' words. And I think this is exactly how we should respond when we hear the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. 
right? If you've ever wondered or if you've ever hoped, like, man, I wish Jesus could just kind of step up here and preach a sermon to me and, and teach me and give me what he wants me to know and learn and how he need, wants me to operate in the world in which I live in today. He did. It's the Sermon on the Mount. He gave us his exact word. He gave us the sermon he wanted to preach of what it means to live as children in the kingdom of God. And how would we respond to these words? What would we do with these words? We're going to see what the crowds do with these words. We're going to see, I think, how we should respond and like to these words. And there's three things that we're going to see, right, as we see uh, Christ finish this sermon, the crowds, the text tells us, are going to be astonished. They're going to recognize his authority, and the people are going to follow him. Matthew 7, 28 through 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And then on into chapter 8. And when he came down from the mountain, the great crowds followed him. Right? And so verse 28, and when they finished, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So Jesus has just delivered this amazing sermon, his inauguration as Messiah and King, the very beginning of his public ministry. And it says, God's word tells us that the people, the crowds that heard it were astonished. Now, a lot of times we read that word and we just kind of think they were amazed. They're like, wow, Jesus great job, great sermon. Woo, all right, let's go home. No, the, the Greek word here, the word that's being used, astonished, doesn't mean amazed, though it may have some of those connotations. I think what the root, what it's really getting at is the word here is more accurately could be translated dumbfounded. They were dumbfounded at what they just heard. They were like, <laughs> they just heard the sermon, all these things that Jesus just taught them, all, all these things he pressed in on them, and they were kind of looking around at each other in one of these moments. What just happened? Have you ever been a part of one of those moments? You're like, oh my goodness. They, were just, they didn't even really know what to do with it. They were dumbfounded. They were just, they were, their hair was blown back. They just didn't have any frame of reference for what they had just heard. They had no words. Some were scared, some were mad, some were weeping, some were joyful, some were uh, confused, but they were dumbfounded. They were astonished, meaning they will never forget it. It left a profound imprint on them. And what they just heard they can't just move on from what they've just heard if they believe that which they heard is right or true. Something has to be done about it. You ever had a moment like that? Kind of this dumbfounded moment? I was kind of racking my brain for a story, like what in my life or a story here? So I, one came to mind, you'll have to forgive me, it doesn't correlate exactly, but it was this profound moment in one of my very good friend's lives. He was young. He had three brothers. His father had been in the military, and this was uh, years ago, back before cell phones, and I guess back before gun safes were cool, right? And so his father was in the military, and he had his, his pistol in the sock drawer. That's kind of where dad kept it. And as little boys, they were curious about this, and I guess maybe dad had had the talk with them to not mess with his weapon, uh, but they were little boys, and they were curious, and one of them uh, grabs this firearm out of dad's sock drawer in Bryan College Station. 
three brothers, all very close in age. And they were kind of looking at it, right? They thought it was cool. They were like, oh, man, this is, this is neat. I, I've never held one of these. Dad's never let us touch it. They were intrigued by it. And uh, mom walks into their, her bedroom where they were, all these, these three boys kind of looking at this gun. And she freaks out, of course, right? I, it, I think it was probably loaded. Grabs this gun, puts it away, and gives them a, screams at him, yells at him, don't you ever do that again. I cannot believe you. Your father's told you not to touch this. I can't believe you grabbed this, right? And then she said the words that three young boys, knowing that they've done something that they clearly shouldn't have, that has grave consequences, never want to hear, especially from a dad that was a former Marine. Just wait till your father gets home. And she literally said, sit right there and do not move. It was before the days of cell phones, so she couldn't call dad. He was just at work. And so he gets home, and she tells dad what happened, and they knew they were in big trouble. They're like, we were just going to look at it and put it right back. We'd never seen it. And dad walks in to their bedroom, and there's these three boys. This was a matter of life and death, right? This was a frightening moment, and dad was wondering, how do I get the, the message across to these three young boys to never, ever do this again? And uh, this was back in the days of whoopings, right? I mean, anyone ever got one of those when they were growing up? Anyone got a whooping? Yeah, we don't do that anymore or say that anymore. That was, it's gone out of fashion, so to speak. Um, this was, he was telling me the story, and I couldn't believe it. He goes, dad walks in. He was the littlest brother. And his older brothers, they all got the whooping first. And he was so on fire mad, wanting to teach these three boys a lesson. He walks in, and rather than the belts or the switch, he looks up at the ceiling fan and goes, <laughs> rips the fan blade off and gives each three of them a whooping with the fan blade he ripped off the ceiling. <laughs> Dumbfounded. <laughs> They're, what just happened? He's like, I've never touched a gun since. Like, it profoundly marked his life, right? He, he knew, like, and now this, obviously Jesus isn't beating us with a fan blade here, but Jesus said things. Jesus knew that what he was about to say, what he was going to get across, meant life and death. This is what he's been talking about. There's a narrow road and there's a wide road. The narrow road leads to life. The wide road leads to death. If you build your life on my words, you'll find life. But very few people find it. And he's pleading with us. He's pleading with us to wake up. Wake up from our selfishness. Wake up from the things we fill our lives with that are just killing us. This is a sermon that has life and death in the balance, much like that father of those three young boys. How might I get this message across? And the words that Jesus speaks to us are from life and death. And after we get done hearing them, we and likewise should be dumbfounded. It should mark us. We should be changed by it. We should be saying, what did I just hear? What, what? I, I don't even have a category for this. And in case you haven't been with us or you don't remember every one of my sermons the last 15 weeks, which I hope you all should have them all memorized by now. You listen to them constantly. <laughs> what's, ha what's been happening? What has Jesus been saying? Why would they be so shocked by all of this? Well, here you've got Jesus of Nazareth. 
Here's a guy who came out of the backwoods. He's from kind of a hick town, if we were to just say it in plain terms. His dad was a blue-collar blue carpenter. He probably built some of the cabinets of the guys listening. Maybe a couple of the guys listening, Jesus helped build the coffee table or the table they ate on. And all these guys are listening, and they're like, does this guy, how is he talking like, who is this guy? This is Jesus, the son of the carpenter. How does he have authority to say this stuff? His dad swings a hammer and builds stuff for me in my home. So they're like, already that is confusing to a lot of them. How does he tell me the things he's been telling me? Right? Jesus, well, what's he been telling everyone? He says, well, the kingdom of God that you've all been waiting for, it's arrived because I'm here. It's at hand. And they're thinking, what? Um, Jesus says, I'm the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And then Jesus unfolds all, all these kind of blessings, but he talks about all these blessings. Remember, blessed is the poor in spirit. He talks about all these blessings that God's people will have with circumstances that none of us want to be a part of, really, at the end of the day. He said, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are the persecuted, blessed are those that are in prison, blessed are those who are martyred for my name's sake. You're like, what? That doesn't sound like blessing to me. None of us would describe that as blessed. None of us are signing up for that one. Oh, yeah, okay, I'll be the, I'll sign up to be hungry this, this month. Jesus calls that Blessed. And then from there, he goes on to give us these identity statements as believers. And he says, well, if you follow me, if you really let this sink into your heart, into your mind, you're going to be the salt of the earth, meaning you'll be noticed. The kingdom of God will begin to be tasted and felt. He said, and also you're going to be the light of the world. I'm going to deposit the light of the kingdom of God in you as you walk about your day. And people will begin to see the light of the kingdom of God in this very dark world in which we live and operate. There's going to be light and darkness. And then he goes on, he says, well, you know what, also, I'm, he goes, I am, me, Jesus, am the fulfillment of the entire law of God. All the things you've been banking your life on, all the things that you've hoped in all the Ten Commandments, all the moral law, he goes, I am the fulfillment of all of it, me. And then he starts talking about righteousness in the kingdom of God, like he knows what he's talking about with authority. And then he starts bringing up really taboo issues, things that we feel uncomfortable even talking about still today. They're probably even more taboo today, like marriage, sexuality, and he lays down a sexual ethic um, that's clear. And they're like, what? How does he, how can he say this stuff? He draws clear lines around the parameters of marriage. He speaks to integrity. He speaks to retaliation. And then he says, you know what? Love your enemies. He says, those people that have wounded you and have hurt you, he says, pray for them and bless them. And he speaks to all of this with this authority. And he speaks to all of this like he knows what he's talking about because he's right. He's right. And then he keeps calling God his father. Can you imagine that? 
God is father, dad. Who is this guy to call God dad? And then he keeps telling us that if we follow Jesus, we can likewise call our heavenly father dad. What? And then he calls out our love for money, our love to just acquire things and build our own kingdoms and be safe because we don't need any external help. We don't need to call upon the name of the Lord. We can just do it ourselves. He speaks to our issues of anxiety, things we get worried about, things that lead to depression, things that begin wrecking our inner spirit and our inner lives that just wage war against us. And he says, but peace can be yours when you trust in me. And then he, and then he starts closing and landing the plane. He goes, there's two roads and there's two houses and two trees and two kinds of fruits, one false and one true, one wide road that leads to death, one narrow road that leads to life and not very many people find it. And he says, and guess who gets to determine who is on the wide road and who's on the narrow road? He says, I do. I'm the judge. And he places himself squarely in the center of redemptive history. He says, I'm the one that gets to make that distinction. He goes, there's going to be an account that's given. It's going to be given to me. He says, look, if you hear all this stuff, and this is where it starts getting like really crazy. If you hear all this stuff, and this isn't even, this is not easy or fun to say out loud, but this is, this is just what Jesus is saying. This is not like, this is all kind of falling out of favor to say out loud in church these days. Jesus is literally saying, he says, listen, if you hear these words of mine and you do nothing about it, it produces nothing in you. It changes nothing in you. It doesn't enter into your heart and melt your hard hearts. He says, destruction is what you want to hear it. Wow. But on the flip side, if you hear these words of mine, and, and they're hard to hear, and it's this narrow path, and not very many people find it, but if, if, if you hear me, and you trust me, and you, and you go where I'm calling you to, and you live, and you breathe my life and my words, and you trust me that I've got you, he goes, that one leads to life. He says, not a lot of people will find it. That I mean, let's just real quickly just say, that's crazy. All that is like a crazy, all, I mean, just call it like it is. That, those are crazy claims that Jesus just made. And so they hear this and they're astonished. They're like, whoa. They can't believe it. And in all of this, if you honestly read what Jesus is saying, we kind of want to argue with Jesus and say, it can't really be like that. We want to push back against him. We want to fight him on stuff. And he says, listen, there's two roads. There's not a hundred options. There's two. There's my way, and then there's every other way. And the one that everyone seems to be on, that wide path that's like just trampled down, it leads to... A, it leads to uh, places you don't want to be a part of. And the other one that I show you that's based on my life and my words is where life is and where truth is and where healing is found and where forgiveness is found and where community is found. He says, but not a lot of you will find it because it's hard. 
So he leaves us just with this question, kind of evaluating, are we trusting the word and the work of Jesus? And are we on that narrow road? Would we define our lives? Is there anything in our life right now that could be defined as hard because we're following Jesus? And if so, that's okay, because he says, sometimes it's going to be, but I'm with you, so it makes it good. And we can trust him. But the crowds, and we oftentimes likewise, are just like, what do I do with this? Who is this Jesus that can say these crazy things? He speaks with passion and truth. And it's like he knows who I am. It's like he already knows where I struggle. He does. He does. And he comes strong, doesn't he? He doesn't make any apologies. Because he's right. He doesn't second guess, he doesn't stumble, he doesn't backtrack on his words, but at the very same time, he's also tender and he's also inviting. He's saying, come, trust me, follow me. These other places, these other people, they will try to deceive you. They're wolves in sheep's clothing, he told us last week, don't trust them, trust my voice. So he offends us and challenges us and yet invites us all in the same breath. Who is this man, Jesus? They're astonished. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, you have to do something with Jesus. Either he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's really Lord. That's how C.S. Lewis put it. Either he's a liar, he's a lunatic, because no sane person says this stuff, right? I, like, if I got up and told you all this stuff, you'd be like, oh, we're out of here. Sean's lost his, the, the wheels have fallen off the wagon. Or he's a total lunatic, or he's the son of the living God. He is really who he says he is, church. And when we realize what's happened over the last 15 weeks as we've read these words, as we've saddened them, we've heard him. Jesus has shown us what it means to belong to him. Jesus has shown us what it means to be his, to be found in him, what it means to follow him. He's called out all the false ways. He's called to the carpet all the easy roads that lead to death. And he's given us clarity on the path in which it leads to life. It's not easy, but it's good, and it's true, and it's right, and it's beautiful. And so this struck me deeply this week because I think a lot of times we can, we, we can read the Bible and like, oh, great, he's given me the roadmap that I just need to now follow. And we then tend to, then we just make it about, about us again. But catch this, this struck me. God has not given us the Sermon on the Mount so that we can figure out how to get to him. The Sermon on the Mount is a clear declaration that God has come down to us in the Lord Jesus Christ and has clearly shown us that he is the one that brings us near to God. That's the Sermon on the Mount. It's not a roadmap of how I can figure out and navigate. Okay, he's shown me the secret way on how. To, no, it's like he is the way. He's the one. He's come down. Jesus wasn't silent. He, God didn't send his son to come and just be the secret shopper and evaluate our lives and come with condemnation. He sent the son of the living God to clearly, verbally give us the words of God that we may know where life could be found. Amen? He brings us near. So we don't have to try hard to find the way. 
Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. The Son of God came speaking to us for our good. So the crowds were astonished. Who is this guy? Verse 29. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as one of their scribes. So they'd never really heard anyone kind of say the things in which he was saying with such confidence and boldness. The days of Jesus, kind of the rabbinical way, if a rabbi was going to come and he was going to have authority uh, amongst his people, so a rabbi, a teacher would come uh, helping people understand the way to God, a rabbi would come and oftentimes, just like I did a second ago and I quoted C.S. Lewis, I quoted C.S. Lewis to lean on the credibility of C.S. Lewis because C.S. Lewis is way smarter than me. He's dead. There's a lot of books that he wrote, and he's like, what? he's awesome, right? We're like, yes. Okay, Sean quoted C.S. Lewis, so he kind of has some credibility because he knows the words of C.S. Lewis. That is exactly what the rabbinical way used to be, and so not a lot has changed. So rabbis would come, and they would quote the most pervasive, popular, uh, old dead guys of the rabbinical way and teaching people how to live as God's people. And they would gain credibility by their knowledge that they amassed that was in their brain and they could teach and they could articulate and they could show people the way of God through all the things they'd learned, through memorizing the scripture and through knowing uh, all these great doctrines and theologies of those who have come behind them. Jesus comes, if you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, and he does something very different. He goes, you've heard it said this way. He goes, but I say this. You've heard it said like this. He's flipping the whole thing. He says, you've heard it said this way, but guess what? My word is true. I'm the authority. I don't have to claim anyone behind me or before me because I am before all things. I say it this way. You've heard it said like this. I say this. Whoever does my words finds life. And whoever does not will experience a great fall. Who talks like this? Jesus is speaking with heavenly authority. Now, we don't like authority, do we? Anyone in here, raise your hand if you love authority, press down upon you every single day, yeah? No one? Yeah, we, we just don't like it, right? We, I think even like maybe even my generation or maybe the generation even coming up behind me, we just... We have this struggle. Maybe, I think this is just a human, like pervasive struggle with any generation, but it maybe just feels more um, visible because we've seen great people of authority fall time and time and time again. One scandal after another scandal after another scandal after another untrustworthy uh, decision after another. Un- it's just it's just splayed out on the evening news for us to. Well, no one watches the evening news. Splayed out on our iPhones to read about, or a podcast to tell us about. And so we have this mistrust of authority, and, it's, and we, we don't like it. And so what we end up saying, what we end up living our lives, well, you don't tell me what to do. No one can tell me what to do. You are not in charge of me. I'm in charge of me. I build my life. But church, hear me on, on this point. This is very important. The gospel is only the true gospel because Jesus has authority. It is not good news if he does not have authority. 
We love good, so an example, we love uh, grace, right? We love the grace of Jesus. We love the comfort of Jesus. We love the patience and assurance that he brings us. He can only deliver that to us if he actually has authority to do that. Otherwise, it's just well wishes. Forgiveness of sins that Jesus talks about can only be forgiveness if it comes from an authoritative forgiver. Right? Grace can only be grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus poured out on those who are undeserving can only be real grace if it comes from someone who has the final verdict, who is above us and over us and is the judge. He can only bestow upon those who are unworthy grace if he is the final verdict. The gospel is only the gospel, the true gospel, if the authority of Jesus is fully intact, right? So his authority shows us the true way. Only someone with authority can say there's two ways. One is life and one is death. One leads to me. One leads to a whole bunch of other things, and it's not going to go well if you, if you follow upon it. So Jesus is looking at us, and he's saying, wake up. Wake up. And so the crowds are baffled. These, these are hard words, no doubt. And here's where I want to close uh, this morning. I want to close by showing the crowd's response. Chapter 8, we're going to tip into chapter 8. I know the Sermon on the Mount is supposed to be over, but I think this is important for us to see. Verse 1. And when he, Jesus, came down from the mountain after teaching, great crowds followed him. They were totally confused about what they just heard. They were dumbfounded. They were like, what just happened? I don't fully grasp all of this. But isn't really that all of us when we encounter God's word? Aren't there things that we read we're like, I don't know what to do with this. I can't, like, this is so much. I mean, that's all of us, I think, in many cases, a lot of the times. Who is this Jesus? I can't quite wrap all of my mind around him, my brain around him, my emotions around him. What is he asking of me? What is he saying? But I want to follow him. I want to be near him. There's something about this one Jesus that it's like he knows me. It's like he's read my mail. And though I don't understand every nuance of him, I want to be near him. I want to follow him. And that's, that's so many of us. And in case you're in here this morning and you think Christianity is all about having everything about Jesus figured out and you just kind of put it in a nice neat box and put it on the shelf and you're like, okay, great. I totally understand all of his words and works and what he's asking of me. That is not the Christian experience. The Christian experience is more like what these crowds just experienced when they hear the words of Jesus that are so countercultural and so uh, hard to really grasp and get our mind around that we're saying we're left dumbfounded, but we're like, he knows me. And I got to follow him. I want more of him. I want more of him. This unexplainable reason I'm drawn to him. That is the normal Christian experience, in case you were confused about that. And I think a lot of us maybe uh, tend to put on the, uh, the Instagram face, even our Christianity, that we've got it all figured out. We have every, every little minutia of theology figured out. Well, the words of Jesus are astonishing 
And in my experience, the longer I've been a Christian, the more astonished I am, the less I realize I know about him, the infinite, eternal, everlasting God who breathed creation into existence. And Jesus continues to say, one of my favorite astonishing things that he says is uh, John chapter 6, and he keeps saying crazy things. Uh, and he goes, and he's looking at the crowds. And this one really thins the crowd. Not too, some, some people follow, some people just run away. Right? There's two responses. He looks, he looks at his people and he goes, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot come after me. And these people are like, what did he just say? That's an astonishing statement. That's dumbfounding. People left for sure when he said that. And it says that he turns to his disciples because all these people just like left. Uh, the opposite of good church growth strategies. Jesus did not write the book on church growth. <laughs> he just wants to whittle them down. He's like, there's two paths. Most of you are going to hell. There's very few people that are going to find the narrow one. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you're not fit to follow me in the kingdom of God. They're like, what is this guy talking about? And he looks at his disciples who had been with him and are hanging on every one of his words. And he says, are you guys leaving me too? And Peter, I think, says what all of us feel, or I hope we all feel. He says, Jesus, where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. You alone have the words of life. I don't always understand them, but I want to be right next to you. I don't want to deviate away from you. So this entire Sermon on the Mount that we've experienced with its sexual ethics, with its loving your enemies, with its strong call to obedience, with Jesus as the final judge, yet at the same time makes God our father, our most intimate relationship, our dad, comes down to this. Right? It seems like it's us following him. It's us pressing into him. It's us being near him, next to him. But a lot of times what we do is we hear the words of Jesus. We walk away astonished. And what I don't want us to do, I'm almost, I was telling folks, I'm almost sad this is ending because I've loved just being in the words of Jesus for 15 straight weeks. And I'm sad that it's ending because so many Christians, myself included, what we do is we take these astonishing, amazing things that Jesus says and we kind of boil them down to statements like this. Well, I just need to try harder and do better next time, I think. That's kind of what Christianity is. What? Where, where does that come from? Where do we even think that, that that could be the case? After we've astonished with all of these things that Jesus just says, if we walk away and we just think that Christianity is try a little bit harder and uh, do better next time, and, uh, and, and I'll make it. We've missed the entire Sermon on the Mount. The point is, is that you can't try hard enough. You never could. You can't do better next time. How's your track record? How's that worked out for us? And so Jesus here says all that he says. People are astonished. People begin following him because they want to be next to him in this upside-down kingdom that he just laid out for us that is 
the most amazing picture of what it means to be a people together for the kingdom of God we have ever heard this side of heaven. And he runs into someone in verse 2 in Matthew chapter 8. Behold, a leper came to him. A leper. Unclean, unfit, outcast, has nothing to offer God, is the lowest of the low, unclean. You can't even touch him. He lives a life of isolation and eventual death, and everyone forgets about him and send him off to another place. This leper comes to this one who just talked about what it means to live in the kingdom of God. His words have authority. And this leper comes and just kneels down on his knees because he's just unworthy. There's nothing to bring this Jesus. And he says this right, at, right on the heels of this sermon, right after Jesus walks off the mountain. And he says, Lord, He's on his knees. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Anyone else have that desire today? After hearing all this? No, I do. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And what did Jesus do? Verse 3. Jesus, the Son of God, stretched out his hand and touched that man. Never been touched before. And says this. I will be clean. Christianity is not about doing better. The gospel is not about uh, making sure you look the part or act the part. It's not about being good. It's not about cleaning yourself up. The first thing Jesus does as he sets the foundation of what it means to live in the kingdom of God, some of it's over our head, some of it we're dumbfounded by, some of it we're confused by, some of it we're mad about, some of it we're drawn to, we just can't get enough. The first thing he does is he reaches down and touches an outcast who could do nothing for himself and could bring nothing to God. And Jesus says, I see you. I know you. I know your greatest struggle. I know that you feel alone. I know that you've been sent out. And I'm not afraid. And he touches the unclean one. With his authoritative power. This is a clear marking of the authority of Jesus' word. We talked about they were astonished that he had authority. He was teaching like one who had authority. He now shows that his word has power to change. And he cleanses someone who was unworthy, who was unclean and cast down. That could bring nothing to God. And he says, I see you. And I will. You're clean. Jesus' words have authority, and his words can heal and can invade dark places and can invade the places of anxiety and shame. It can overcome the places we don't even understand about his kingdom, but we just need to stay right next to him. And in fact, as I read this, I'm struck with the fact that this leper just came to him and asked him, do you ever, have you, what are you asking of Jesus today, this week? Are you asking him to move and intervene in the places that you need him to? Are you just kind of moving on and doing your thing? Do you need the intervention of Jesus in a deep place because he knows you? He can enter in. And his response is, I'll help. Be clean. There's no strings attached. There's no negotiation it's not, well, 
You kind of fix yourself up first and come back and talk to me in a couple weeks. Show me a good track record. No. His authority, his way, his word. We can trust him. Church, this is the gospel in action. We need help from above. We can't do it ourselves. We lean heavy on his strength and his authority, and he can do and move in places we can never imagine. That's really good news for me. I hope it's really good news for you. Are you following him? Are you trusting him? Do his words have authority in your life? Or are you just kind of going about the Christian kind of way? Sort of living the Christian life and checking the box? Are you asking anything of him today? Are you desperate for him in some way? He has power. And he looks down in these places and he has all the authority in heaven and in earth and he can change. He can move. He has the power to do it. Let's pray, church. Lord, we thank you that you can move in places that we cannot, that you can heal in places we cannot fix ourselves. We thank you that the gospel and the kingdom of God is not just doing better, but it's placing our full trust on your words and your works to do what we could never do for ourselves that it's a gospel of grace because you show us the way. And so, God, I pray for each of us here in this room, God. Lord, I pray for our church. God, I just pray that we wouldn't be a group of people that would hear these words for so many weeks, these these pervasive, thought-provoking, soul-searching words, and we wouldn't just walk away and say, I'll try better next time, but we would lean heavy on you. We would long to be people of the kingdom of God that light would invade darkness and you would make us into something new. We need you. We long to trust you. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship, church.